very disappointed to see that you people didn't do as much drinking last night as I thought you would because the attendance is pretty good. Expecting a very good attendance um, here. And, um, uh, this, this topic is probably the most economic-oriented of all the topics I've seen on the schedule, but so I'm going to try to address myself uh, uh, to more general audience. I realize that there will be economists or minority in the audience here. But uh, the topic that uh, Hans asked me to talk about is uh, errors of public choice. And uh, I thought I'd give you a sort of a five-minute historical background about what this public choice is about what the word public choice means for those of you who are not economists or familiar with this. Um, it has to do with the uh, fact that in economics there were a number of uh, what economists call revolutions in the 20th century. Most of you are familiar with the Keynesian revolution, but there was also a uh, somewhat of a theoretical revolution in the theory of competition, which is known as the perfect competition revolution, in which uh, the way in which economists thought of the most fundamental concept in economics, competition changed uh, from, from the time of pre-Adam Smith on. Competition meant rivalry, uh, uh, entrepreneurship, price cutting, differentiation of products to try to please consumers, advertising was a, a part of it. Uh, economies of scale through large-scale production was viewed as another way to compete by dropping your costs. And then in the early 20th century, that changed as the, as the economics profession tried to mimic uh, physical sciences. And they came up with a, a more a, a model of competition that could be uh, expressed in mathematical terms called perfect competition. And it had these assumptions behind it of uh, many firms, you had many firms, but a few firms, uh, homogeneous products and prices, uh, uh, free entry and exit in the industry, and perfect information. Consumers were omniscient and businesses were omniscient in terms of how to go about providing goods to consumers. And so this uh, this model, these, these assumptions were taken literally by a lot of economists as this is what the ideal world looks like. And so what the economics profession did was to set up what the economist Harold Dem says a long time, which is a totally unrealistic, unachievable world and that led to another revolution in economics called the market failure revolution. Because the, the method all throughout the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s in the economics profession was to look at this, this nirvana, this, this never achievable world of perfection, perfect competition, compare actual markets to it and declare that markets have failed because they don't meet this unachievable ideal of perfect competition. And of course, uh, markets were, were uh, said, said to fail everywhere. If you, if you read some of the older textbooks, like Paul Samuelson, for example, who's the biggest selling textbook author in the world for uh, roughly from 1948 into the 1980s, uh, he, he taught generations of students that the only really competitive markets, I think, were, he said, were natural gas and cotton because uh, they're homogeneous, natural gas, and they seem to fit this idea. Everything else is a monopoly of some kind or another. So you have 40 or 50 years of college students taught this nonsense of market failure. And there's a famous book that was sort of a summary of the state of the arts. Uh, it was published in the 1950s by uh, Francis Bader, B-A-T-O-R. It was called Anatomy of Market Failure. And it was, uh, 
And so that's that's where the economic profession was when you get into the 1960s. It was uh, pretty much uh, a recipe for interventionism. And what public choice was all about was uh, some of the pioneers were my professors, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock were professors of mine in graduate school. And uh, there were colleagues of mine at George Mason uh, some years later. Uh, I, I tell people that as soon as they learned I was at George Mason, they left Virginia Tech and moved to George Mason. But, uh, but uh, they were pioneers then. But what they did essentially was to resurrect uh, the way in which uh, writers used to write about uh, economic issues in terms of political economy and not divorcing economics from, from politics. And so what they did was take a lot of just old ideas that had been known for generations by uh, political philosophers and, and others and express them in the language of modern economics. Uh, and, and the method was to say, okay, they accepted the market failure model. They said, we're not going to criticize that. However, uh, we're going to analyze how governments work. And governments may fail even worse than, uh, than markets. And so the method of analysis was to say that market failure is a necessary but not sufficient condition for government intervention. And of course, they may talk about things such as political externalities. You know, markets are said to be filled with externalities, pollution, and so forth of all kinds. Well, there are political externalities by, by definition in a democracy because you have all or none decision making. That means uh, if we decide that uh, in the U.S., for example, if we decide that our next president is Ron Paul, uh, it will make the liberals very unhappy because government will be too small uh, uh, for them. And it will make the neocons very unhappy because he will not try to invade the entire planet with the U.S. military. And so all this unhappiness by the people who don't get their way in democracy is called a political externality. And it goes from, from the local dog catcher election if your dog catcher, uh, uh, animal control people were elected to the president of the country, uh, they're political externalities. And so, and, and they introduce such things as rational ignorance, uh, the idea that the average citizen doesn't have much of an incentive to be informed about politics, therefore special interests will, will dominate uh, politics. Um, they recognize the fact that politics and democracy is usually a matter of governments dispensing very highly concentrated benefits to small, concentrated, and politically effective groups, and then scattering the costs among the population with maybe a, a small tax per person that no one will ever notice. And that way, uh, we don't notice. It's sort of like uh, plucking a chicken one feather at a time. You don't really notice until you're standing there naked. You're the chicken, and you don't know where, where, what happened to all my feathers. Uh, and so, and all of this, of course, has been expressed uh, uh, in mathematical models and very sophisticated-looking theories, but they're all pretty simple ideas. Uh, the, short, the inherent short-sightedness of politicians uh, is a big part of public choice, that uh, their main concern is always uh, making themselves popular before the next election. And in the U.S. Congress, that's never more than two years away. And so there's an inherent incentive to spend now and, uh, and worry later about where the money will come from, uh, creating huge deficits, for, for example. So all of these things were good. Public choice, and I, I was educated by the public choice pioneers, again, and so on. So I'm not an overall critic of everything they've ever done, by any means. Um, but um, what, what I'm going to have to say, and of course they developed the theory of democracy also. Von uh, Mises got there much earlier uh, in his book on bureaucracy. 
bureaucracy, but there was also a public choice version of the theory of government bureaucracy. Uh, but what I'm going to say is I have a number of critiques where I thought this whole area of research, which has generally been a good thing, uh, certainly you can want the Nobel Prize for it. Uh, and, and even George Stigler and Gary Becker, when they won the Nobel Prize in economics, uh, they were known for work in public choice also, in addition to other things that they were, they were known for. And so you could argue that there have been at least three Nobel Prizes awarded for this whole area here. But um, my main critiques of it are um, on certain areas of public choice that I think has gone astray and has even uh, promoted uh, interventionism in, in a big way, and the opposite of what, you know, what it was most people think of it as, as doing. And one is uh, the, the method of modeling the state as a firm. There's a lot of part of this literature that began in the 1960s and 70s up to this day that attempts to just take the, the, the economist's theory of the business firm and say, well, the, the state is a kind of a business firm. There's even a book with the title, The State as a Firm. It was, well, I think the one they won a Award by the Public Choice Society many years ago. I, I remember being at a Public Choice Society meeting when this book was given an award, The State as a Firm. And there's a lot of talk about how, uh, in, in this literature, about how uh, political entrepreneurship is sort of similar to business entrepreneurship. After all, um, there are markets, they say, in politics. There are, there's a demand for legislation, uh, special interest usually, and there's a supply. That's what politicians do. They supply legislation, just like in markets. And uh, George Stigler is especially known for saying this sort of thing that uh, you know, politics is like markets, and some of his students are, and Buchanan and Tullock did also. And uh, I'll give you one example of how I think this, this can be grossly misleading think of the uh, state as some sort of firm, business firm, and as political entrepreneurs, as they're called, as being similar to uh, the business entrepreneurs. So, some of the research uh, that I've been involved in basically says that uh, the big difference between what you might call a political entrepreneur and a, a, a private entrepreneur is private entrepreneurs, if they're successful, will actually expand uh, wealth in the society. They'll create value for people. That's how they make money. When Bill Gates uh, founded Microsoft and did what he did with Microsoft. He created tremendous value and wealth for the entire world for, for that matter. Political entrepreneurs are involved in transferring wealth from one pocket to another. Uh, they're, they're, they're engaged in, uh, in uh, transferring wealth from one group to another and pocketing some for themselves at the same time. Uh, as I said in an op-ed I wrote, uh, on the website I write for, uh, I, I stated the purpose of government in one sentence. And it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing. But, um, uh, but now that I think of it, I think it's probably a, to qualify me as a, one of the great philosophers of the 21st century. I said, I, I said, the purpose of government is for those who run it to plunder those who do not. And uh, I'm not sure I'm not the first one to say that, but I, I do believe that's, that is the purpose of government. There have been many books written about the purpose of government, but I think that, that basically said that one sentence is so that those who run government can plunder those who do not run government. That's what we have government for, despite all the theories of market failure and public goods and stability and, and so forth. And, uh, and that's what political entrepreneurs do. They, or, they organize the plundering of their fellow citizens. And uh, one example of my research that demonstrates the uh, sort of wrong-headedness, in my view, of some of the public choice literature is there, there, there's a literature on uh, local government finance. 
uh, the, the mixing between the theory of the business firm, which says many firms is a good thing, it means more competition. Well, in cities, we have different uh, kinds of jurisdictions. You might have a city somewhere that has one metropolitan government. Say if Paris had one metropolitan government, there'd be only one government, the government of the city of Paris. But you could have an alternative arrangement of the city of Paris and different types of, in the US we call them counties. Uh, you could have competing governments. And so the public choice uh, literature has made an analogy between competing businesses in, in an industry and competing governments, so-called. And um, in the 1970s and 80s, there were a lot of articles published in economics literature uh, uh, that pretty much concluded that the more governments you have, the better. In a metropolitan area, the more governments you have. Uh, but I've looked at this and I've said, well, the more governments you have, the more government you have. So it's not necessarily a better thing, because this analogy doesn't necessarily uh, work. And, uh, and, and, and the flaw in this is that it's a flaw in a lot of mainstream economics in that it, it relies too much on just theory and econometrics. Uh, economists don't read it. They come up with a clever hypothesis and then they find uh, some book of 10 million statistics in it and test the hypothesis, but they don't read anything, most, well, many of them, about the subject that they're, uh, they're talking about. And in fact, uh, this whole business of the number of governments uh, I've been introduced by a colleague of mine, James Bennett, and I researched um, the subject of how governments respond to tax revolts. Do they just sit back and say, okay, the people are revolted, or well, we know they think the people are revolting, but no one said in the movies, the peasants are revolting. The King of France, you remember that? And he said, sire, the peasants are revolting. And Mel Brooks, uh, who was the King of France, said, they certainly are. <laughs> But when, when taxpayers revolt, um, how do governments respond? Well, in America, anyway, we found that they responded by saying, okay, we will obey your wishes, and then they would immediately get to work creating off-budget government enterprises uh, where they could spend money anyway without the voters knowing about it. And I wrote a whole book about it. It's called Underground Government. <coughs> in Britain, these things are called quangos, quasi-autonomous non-government organizations that are set up as vehicles for avoiding the, the, uh, uh, the, the eyesight, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, view of, of voters and taxpayers. And so um, when I did this study, this research, I found that in America, we had lots of governments in a metropolitan area. It inevitably was the result of the fact of, over the decades, governments trying to evade the wishes of the voters. Whereas the public choice literature said exactly the opposite. They said, oh no, if you look at if you look at this table of statistics published by the US Bureau of the Census, it says that say Minneapolis has uh, 63 different governmental jurisdictions. That must be efficient compared to say New Orleans, which only has 20 governmental uh, jurisdictions within the whole metropolitan area of New Orleans. Because after all, many firms means more competition, fewer firms means less competition. But uh, I think in reality, the truth is exactly the opposite. If you had a, a, and these things are often called, you know, they can be called counties, they can be called uh, townships, they can be called in America, they can be called special districts, special taxing districts, special authorities, public authorities, and all sorts of names for these things. Uh, and, and a lot of them have been uh, really grossly inefficient. Uh, the largest uh, 
bankruptcy in the history of municipal finance in America was in the state of Washington, where they used these off-budget enterprises to build new, five nuclear power plants. And eventually, uh, after about 25 years, only one of them was actually built. The rest were scrapped, and uh, they defaulted on two and a half billion dollars in debt at the time on that. So these, these things are even worse than normal government enterprises. But the public choice literature hails all this as efficient because it's in many of them. And so that's one example of uh, political entrepreneurship that leads to gross inefficiency, not non efficiency, it's not at all the same. Another book I wrote uh, with Jim Bennett was uh, on the, the phenomenon of uh, political entrepreneurship being used to actually give tax dollars to special interest groups, which they can use to lobby the same government for, for higher taxes and more government, which the government will do. They'll raise taxes and become bigger, and then give some more of some of that money back to the special interest groups who will lobby for more government. If they succeed, government gets bigger, they give them more, more money. And so uh, uh, I have an article in the Journal of Public Choice about this called How Government Twists Its Own Arm to explain this phenomenon. The book was called Destroying Democracy, published many years ago. But as far as political entrepreneurship goes, uh, that, uh, I guess it's not news to this group, that uh, politicians work very hard, very smart, very diligently in figuring out how to avoid the wishes of, of consumers and or taxpayers, how to, how to avoid these restraints. Uh, they, don't, they don't serve consumers. So this analogy between the state and the firm I think is totally wrong-headed and has led to all sorts of uh, foolishness in, uh, uh, in any grounds. Uh, another critique I have of the public choice uh, literature is basically a critique of uh, the Buchanan wing of public choice. Uh, Buchanan, of course, was the co-author of Gordon Tullock of the famous book, The Calculus of Consent, which is considered to be a landmark book. And he, he calls his, his wing of public choice constitutional economics. Uh, calls himself a contractarian, some sort of language he, he uses. And um, so well, what is this? For those of you who are uninitiated uh, into this, um, I'll read you a few quotes from Buchanan and Tullock about, uh, from the calculus of consent, actually, and, and their view of the state and the market. Here's a, a quote. The market and the state are both devices through which cooperation is organized and made possible, where two or more individuals find it mutually advantageous to join forces to accomplish certain purposes. Uh, they want to say the public choice approach to the analysis of political decision making incorporates political activity as a particular form of exchange, market, market exchange. And as in the market relation, mutual gains to all parties are ideally expected to result from the collective action. The political process may be interpreted as a positive sum gain, end quote. And believe it or not, this is considered to be part of the classical liberal literature. And the government, just, just like a market, especially from the calculus of consent. And of course, for government to be efficient like markets in the same sense would require unanimous consent. Market exchange is mutually advantageous. Both buyer and seller are better off, otherwise they wouldn't engage in a commercial transaction. And they're saying that politics can be just like this also. And not in all circumstances, of course, they're not naive, but, but they, this is what they said. That, political processing, just like market exchange. And so you have uh, the problem of, well, that requires unanimity. 
And of course, Buchanan and Tollett very quickly understood uh, that while there's never unanimity in government, in fact, uh, they don't say this, but I would say this, that if there was, you wouldn't need government, of course. If we all go unanimously agree on some course of action, we would voluntarily take that course of action. You wouldn't need government at all. And so to keep making this argument that government is efficient, like markets go, uh, they came up with the idea of uh, uh, relative unanimity. So, uh, you know, it's a, a three-fourths majority is better than a 51% majority, after all, or you know, a nine-tenths majority is better. Uh, but it's still not efficient. I mean, the fact that 90% of the people can plunder the other 10% doesn't really make it like a market, does it? Uh, when I have a car to buy your used car from you, I'm happy, I like the car, you like my money. Who's getting plundered there? There's no plundering at all, there's no ripoff at all. So there isn't always politics, no matter what the majority is. And so they, they, so they, they played around for years with models of relative unanimity and policy recommendations based on it. And it didn't seem to catch on that much. They, 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 uh, I guess they must not have thought it was all that persuasive. And so Buchanan came up with this idea of conceptual unanimity. If we can't talk about actual unanimity, let's, uh, and he, uh, he really loved, uh, uh, you know, a great revelation that Buchanan was when John Rawls published his book, Theory of Justice, and he had this model of decision-making behind the veils of ignorance. And so Buchanan has written hundreds of articles that start out saying, imagine you're behind the veil of ignorance. What, what type of society would you choose and, uh, of course, a clever uh, political philosopher like James Buchanan could always come up with a scenario uh, to make an argument where uh, uh, you would be unanimous consent to choose certain rules of the game uh, that, that we would uh, play under. And so, conceptual unanimity. I'll, maybe I'll read some of what he says about this. Um, this is Buchanan. To the contractarian, that law is legitimate and just, which might have emerged from a genuine social contract in which he might have participated. That law is illegitimate and unjust, which finds no such contractual basis. But he's not saying that there was an actual agreement among human beings. He says that basically the theorists can theorize that people might have uh, agreed to something, then uh, that law is legitimate. Uh, the social contract is best conceived as subject to continual revision and change, and the consent that is given for this change must be thought of as being continuous. He doesn't say why it must be thought of as being continuous. In other words, if governments continually change the rules of the game on their own without citizen participation, that must be considered as legitimate. Uh, and he says, even when an original contract may never have been made in reality, when current members of the community sense no moral or ethical obligation to adhere to the terms that are defined by the status quo, status quo, and when such a contract may have been violated many times over, but while the status quo defines that which exists, hence, regardless of its history, it must be evaluated as if it were legitimate contractually. End quote. That's uh, Buchanan. So that's what he means by uh, conceptual unanimity. And so using this, Buchanan and others have gone on to make arguments that uh, among the legitimate institutions are antitrust regulation, the welfare state, they model that as a form of insurance against uh, being in poverty, all sorts of public goods arguments, higher education subsidies, zoning regulation, uh, government takeover of the transportation system in the form of road socialism, the government operation of roads, and so forth. 
but uh, the economist Leila Yeager wrote a really scathing critique of this whole uh, segment published short as ten years ago in the Cato Journal, uh, where he said, if when you read these people using the word conceptual unanimity, just substitute the word no for conceptual and you'll know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they're talking about. And so, so they, they don't look at such things as the libertarian theory of class analysis, which is, began in the 17th century, actually, was modeled government as a modern Marxian class analysis, but basically as net taxpayers versus net tax consumers, the people who are the, uh, on net benefit from government basically plunder those who on net don't benefit from government. They ignore all that. They ignore the, the conquest theory of the state, which goes back centuries, and in terms of the, how states have actually been formed. Uh, because they're primarily interested in theoretical models of conceptual unanimity, not real model, real theory, real history of how states have been, uh, have been formed. And uh, Murray Rothbard had something to say about, about this. Uh, uh, some years ago, Hans sent me uh, a, a copy of something Murray Rothbard wrote that he was asked by a foundation before the calculus consent was published to, uh, uh, what do you think about this? And they asked him. Uh, and Murray wrote a big report on it. This is just one little paragraph. He, he recognized that this wing of public choice, the Buchanan wing, the contractarian wing, is just a social contract theory. Here's what uh, Rothbard said. A social contract theory of government can be used to place a stamp of approval on all or most of the actions of the existing government, for example, with Rousseau. Thus, the theory of the divine right of kings began as a check on government, as an order to the king to stay within the divinely commanded laws. But it was transformed by the state into a divine stamp of approval for anything the king might decide to do, end quote. And that's what a lot of this has done, not all of it, but a lot of this contractarian literature, especially Buchanan, is a part of it. You know, I looked on this list of antitrust and so forth, um, and when he makes these, these arguments. Uh, another, another wing of this uh, type of thinking comes from the Chicago School. Uh, George Stigler and Beck Gary Decker, they said they're, they're known for work in public choice as well, and some of their students uh, have it. And a lot of it is, is very good. I like it, like I said at the beginning. I'm not criticizing all of public choice, but just some some of these major segments that I think have actually uh, supported uh, all kinds of interventionism. And uh, Stigler, in his approach to public choice, used a typical Chicago school approach that markets are efficient everywhere. And like Buchanan Pellet, uh, kind of likes the idea that governments are like markets. Governments are like markets. And here's one thing Stigler himself said. In policy analysis, one may legitimately employ an alternative definition of efficiency that rests on the goals adopted by the society through its government. When a society wishes, for example, to give more income to a group than the market provides, we may surely analyze the efficiency with which this is done. In this view, every durable social institution or practice is efficient, or it would not persist over time. If it lasts a long time, it's efficient. And what the, one example he gave in this article was the American uh, Sugar Price Support Program, price, price supports, uh, price supports on sugar, which at the time he wrote this article, 1992, had been around for about 50 years, and it was responsible for about a $3 billion per year subsidy to uh, a couple of hundred sugar cane growers in the US. 
And by virtue of the fact that it, it had been around for 50 years, meant it's efficient, just like the, the market, you know, a, a business uh, establishes a particular practice in manufacturing, and that practice becomes imitated by competitors. Uh, why is it imitated by competitors? Well, because it's efficient, which means it may help it reduce its costs and produce better products. So they keep, they keep it around, they keep doing it over and over again. It's efficient. Well, governments like that too, stick with sense. And, uh, and, but um, I couldn't help but thinking that he says if, if society adopts a program that lasts a long time, very efficient. So I, I, uh, I did some Austrian school econometrics here, and I calculated that uh, at the time Sibyl wrote this article, Soviet communism was 75 years old, which means 50% more efficient than the Schoener Price Support Program. Uh, also, uh, slavery existed for over 80 years under the United States flag, which would make it approximately 60% more efficient than the Schoener Price Support Program. And of course, the largest, uh, the largest democracy in the world is India, which would make it the most efficient place on the planet. Because they were democratic for a long time. They kept that system for a long time. So, so, uh, so I just think it just doesn't make any sense to, to, to uh, make this phony analogy between markets and government on the basis of uh, how, how long it It's true of the market. In the market, you make it, if the human beings make the same decision over and over again running their business, you know, why is that? Well, they think the benefits outweigh the cost of doing that. That's why they keep doing that. But, you know, in these other institutions, government is ultimately based on coercion and threats of coercion and intimidation and violence. Uh, is that how Bill Gates had got such a big market share? He coerced, intimidated, and committed violence against his, his customers and competitors? Well, of course not. But, but that's how the government keeps the price support program and, and, and all these other programs, including slavery, which was a government program. Government protected, government enforced for, uh, for many, many decades all around the world. And so, so I guess my time is running down here. But, um, those are my main critiques, uh, and I guess one final critique I'll make since I have about a minute or two left is that uh, uh, some other research I've done on uh, so-called rent-seeking, which I think should be called plunder-seeking, is much, much better. So it, began, it began as a research agenda of the consequences of trying to influence politics for, for income transfers, for lobbying for tariffs on the imports, for, for example benefit the, the manufacturers at the expense of the consumers. But then there was a lot of rent-seeking done by the econ economists working on rent-seeking themselves. <laughs> they decided, uh, so they must have thought, well, gee, maybe there's a Nobel Prize in this. We're only coming up with a very small number of the cost of rent-seeking, like you know, one half of one percent of GDP. But what if we come up with 10 percent or 20 percent of GDP? That would be a Nobel Prize in that. And so they started expanding rent-seeking to, uh, to uh, all sorts of business activities. And here's, um, here's what uh, one person says, uh, Robert Tolleson, a uh, very well-known public choice economist, a former colleague of mine, George Mason. Uh, he said, the applicability of rent-seeking theory does not depend on a government-propped-up monopoly right. The domain of rent-seeking also includes institutional processes in the private sector. A well-known example concerns non-price competition among perfectly competitive firms. Rent-seeking can readily adhere in a private setting. So there's all, after that there came about the literature on how advertising or product innovation, research and development or rent-seeking. 
But rent seeking was originally some, uh, assumed as at best a zero sum game. Uh, money taken out of one person's pocket, albeit indirectly from terrorists or something, placed into another person's pocket, and probably a negative sum game that would have all boiled down to it. And so they look at that and they look at something that, like uh, product innovation, a company investing millions of dollars in research and development as rent seeking. Uh, but it's just not the same thing. If a company succeeds and, and produces a great product that people like, uh, they're creating great value. They're not, it's a positive sum result in society. It's not a negative sum result, it's even some sum result. But, so that's why I think this is sort of rent-seeking on the part of rent-seeking theorists to try to broaden this to include advertising, product differentiation. And some of this literature even says, okay, if you think uh, product differentiation and innovation is a bad thing, could be a bad thing, some of it anyway, rent-seeking, what's the solution? Well, we need stricter antitrust regulation. Uh, uh, economists named Keith Cowley and Dennis Mueller advocated a new, new government committee in the U.S. Congress that would monitor research and development and decide which kind should be permitted and which kind should not be permitted. And talk about opportunities for red seeking. That's, uh, you know, that would create a, a mountain of lobbying to, to prohibit your competitor's innovation to allow your innovation. And so that's the final area I'll mention where I think some of this literature has really gone astray. But in this case, it's because of, I think, of a uh, misunderstanding of how markets work. By, by relying too heavily on the mainstream or neoclassical model. If they were to rely more on the way the Austrian school thinks about competition as a dynamic arrival process, uh, they wouldn't get involved in that nonsense of uh, trying to condemn capitalism in the name of, uh, of rent seeking, just like they condemn lobbying for a tariff. And so that's my, that's my uh, list of complaints about uh, public choice, the errors of public choice. I have more, but I'm, I'm sure they'll all be curious to find out what the other